Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in. Today is a bonus episode. What that means is that this episode has little or nothing to do with my mission and vision. Instead, I'm talking with cool and interesting people about cool and interesting things. Sometimes these discussions will be with people who I agree with. Sometimes with people I disagree with. But either way, we are exploring topics which I feel are either interesting, important, or both. I feel strongly that it's important to be able to have a respectful and honest conversation about any topic, especially the ones I disagree with. It's only by being curious about what what makes other people tick that we can understand why they believe what they do and why they act how they do. I believe that the more we understand each other, the more united the world will be. And that's a good thing. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, all you beautiful souls. Thank you for joining me for another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the podcast. Today is a bonus episode, and I love my bonus episodes where I get to talk to cool and interesting people about cool and interesting things. Today on the show is my friend Sheila Gunn-Reed. She is the editor-in-chief at Rebel News and also the author of all kinds of stuff. Uh, Stop Notley sounds like a Paige Turner. And the case against David Suzuki, and there's probably a pretty good case for that. And so you want to be a political journalist and probably some other stuff I couldn't find on the interweb. Sheila, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate you making the time. Uh, This is the second time this week that I've had a powerful and influential lady on the show. (laughs) On uh, Monday was Premier Smith, and uh, that one's blowing up on the YouTube. That's kind of cool. At, uh, that was interesting, but of course she has to be very careful about her words. Uh, of course, w- with that job, and I, I have a have a feeling that some of the questions <laughs> that I asked might have backed her into a bit of a corner. But uh, we can be a little bit more free with what we, what we talk about today. And really, I wanted to talk about you because we uh, grew up kind of down the street from each other. I was in Ardrossan where I grew up, and uh, you're in Fort Saskatchewan. How long did you live in the fort? The fort. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've never actually lived in the Ford. I don't live anywhere that's a town, right? right. <laughs> um, Rural girl. I get, yeah, exactly. My mail goes to our dross, and my kids still go to school in our dross and at the Catholic school there. I went to school at the Catholic school in our dross. And so I've, where I live right now, this is the family farm that we've had since 1903. So it was my, you know, went through my family and I ended up with it. So uh, my kids get to ride dirt bikes on the same land where I rode my dirt bike when I was little. Oh, good. Yeah, they get to run loose on the same trails. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've lived here my whole life. This is where my people are from, I guess. Well, it's it's beautiful country. It's uh, funny. Living in southern Alberta, there's a lot less trees down here. I call it brown town. Yeah. It's beautiful. Love being in the foothills. You know, I can look out the window, see the mountains. That's all great. But it's much, much greener uh, where, where you're at. That's for sure. And driving dirt bikes in your backyard. I miss that. That's how I grew up, too. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think we have uh, some mutual friends from our youth. We do. Um, The McMillan team. Yes. Yes. Good people. Good people. Known them since I was a a sprout. But how in the world did you get into journalism? Like at, at what point did you go, yeah, that's for me? You know, I never really did. I had, Ezra had to tell me that it was for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's kind of a long story, but um, I think it is kind of, encapsulates who and what we are at Rebel News. 
because it was way back in 2015, 2014, before Rebel News even existed. Ezra was still at Sun News Network before it was euthanized by the bureaucracy of the CRTC. And I was sort of watching the failings of the mainstream media journalists. And I was, as you know, top speed is how we do uh, in the news business. And uh, it was very difficult when I had old fashioned internet. Well, I think you got bad internet today because it's got to be yours because mine, mine is still crisp, but uh, you're, you're, you're fading on me. Uh, technical difficulties. Have you ever seen the, the Elon Musk um, Skylink coming up in the sky? It's unbelievable to watch. No, I've never watched it, but it's fascinating to watch my old Starlink thing find what is supposed to talk to you. Um, it just makes everything else you used to use look so old and ancient. <laughs> we have uh, a place up by Buffalo Lake. Do you know where that is? Just east of Red oh, Deer, yeah. about an hour? Yeah. So um, uh, me and my boy laying on our backs on, on the beach at night, watching the stars, and then up comes Starlink. It took me a second to realize it wasn't an alien invasion. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, that is something else, that thing coming up. And, and if anybody hasn't seen it, there's these um, Skywatcher apps that you can get or Stargazer apps mm. that you can get on your phone. And you can probably track it so you know when it's going to pop up. But it's it's an experience for sure. That's crazy. It's probably spawned a thousand conspiracy theories just seeing that they come up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I thought it was UFO guaranteed. <laughs> no luck, though. I was hoping. I was hoping it was. So... Uh, you, you got into journalism because Ezra gave, gave you the nudge for it. Uh, how, how did yeah. you know Ezra um, prior to that? Uh, you know, it's a very long story because I didn't really. <laughs> we sort of traveled in the same circles. Okay. Um, uh, bef- before my internet or somebody's internet failed, um, uh, you sort of have to go back to 2014, 2015. I was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, my husband works in the oil patch. We are also on a farm, so there's lots for me to do. My kids were quite little and and busy. But, you know, I've always been sort of politically engaged and socially uh, engaged, like, in the culture wars. And I noticed in, like, 2014, 2015, I noticed that the mainstream media were really falling down on the job. Um, it was... Just then that um, Rachel Notley had sort of been swept into power um, in like the spring of 2015. And I noticed that. And that's where my one book stopped or um, uh, not stopped Notley. uh, The Destroyers came from. It's a chronicle of who and what those people are. Um, But I noticed that the NDP didn't hide who they were. They didn't hide how radical their candidates were. They just knew the mainstream media was never going to look into it. They knew they were going to pass. So they never even bothered to scrub their social medias. And so I sort of started going through some of the candidates' social medias after the fact to see how radical they were. And then in that same summer, uh, Justin Trudeau announced his, you know, like it was Harper was... Uh, On his last term, there was going to be an election um, in the fall, sort of headed into winter. And so it was the summer of campaigning. And so I thought, obviously, the mainstream media fell down with these NDP candidates. How bad are these liberal candidates? So I started looking through their social media accounts. Again, when my kids were having a nap or when they were at dance class or whatever. And I found some real doozies. In fact, the 
candidate that was running opposite of Michelle Rempel Garner now in Nose Hill in Calgary, the liberals had to remove her because of her prior social media posts. And this is me going through her social media, just a mom, my kids are, you know, I did gymnastics or whatever, and I'm just curious, which is something the mainstream media could have done. They just didn't want to because naturally they're cheering for Justin Trudeau. And so I took screenshots of that and I had a Twitter account. So I just dumped it onto my Twitter account. And pretty soon it had picked up steam. The liberals are being forced to answer questions about this candidate they have running in Nose Hill. The liberals are forced to remove her. And it was all because I was doing the mainstream media's job that they so, refused to do. So in this particular case, what were the, because uh, I don't remember that story, uh, what were the items about this uh, candidate that were eyebrow raising? Anyways, I think I was talking about the candidate. Her name was Alibaz Reba. And she had uh, she had said some pretty ugly things about Jewish people, oh, including, no. ironically, Ezra Levant, who was not my boss at the time, telling uh. him to go back to Israel. Uh, his family's been in Alberta for a very long time. Wow. Uh, he's born and raised Albertan. And so, you know, these things were anti-Semitic and uh, she was removed for, for that. But the mainstream media, when they were reporting on what I was doing, they were still getting the story wrong because they were reporting me as a large C conservative researcher, as though I worked for the party. I didn't work for anybody. I was just a mom doing the job that they were supposed to be doing, and they're still getting the story wrong. Um, and it was a real eye-opener for me because I realized how, like, easy it was. It's like it, I don't want to say that my job is easy, but it's pretty easy to, to beat the mainstream media at their own job. They don't work very hard, So, <laughs> generally speaking. So um, in the, sort of in the wake of that, um, Sun News Network had been euthanized and Rebel News or Rebel Media at the time sort of rose from the ashes of that. And Ezra had seen what I had done online hmm. and what I had done with some other candidates. And he reached out to me. Um, he said, I think we have some mutual contacts. And he said, what you're doing is journalism and I've got this new thing going. Uh, would you be willing to come work for me? And I said, I'm, I'm not doing journalism. I'm just, you know, just be, <laughs> being a citizen. Um, and uh, by the way, my kids are not in school full time. So that's not the deal my family signed up for. Um, because at the time, my littlest one was in kindergarten. So it was like half days or whatever. Yeah. And then September rolled around. And Ezra reached out to me again and said, look, your excuse just started for school full time. So now you don't have an excuse because you didn't give me a better one. So now you have to come work for me. And that was uh, <laughs> almost eight years ago. <laughs> what Rebel has achieved in a very, very short time um, is, is incredible. The viewership that Rebel has is really, really significant. And how annoying you are to Justin Trudeau is just fantastic. <laughs> I think you make him throw up a little every time he hears uh, the name Rebel News. But um, what do you think the the secret is success here is? I mean, clearly Rebel's filling a gap. And yeah. is it just curiosity? Uh, is the legacy media all bought and paid for? Like, why is there such a big gap in in story coverage? You know, I think you are touching on a lot of relevant things, and I think they are all relevant to Rebel's success. Um, 
even the perception of being colonized by the government damages the credibility of the mainstream media. So I know there are plenty of good journalists still within the mainstream media. I and mean, we've got Rick Bell here in Alberta and Joe Warmington in Toronto, and they do work for Post Media. Uh, someday we'll get them <laughs> at Rebel News. Uh, careers at rebelnews.com, guys. <laughs> but um, there's some of that. So the fact that their bosses take Justin Trudeau's money to keep the lights on inherently damages their credibility and the, the perception of their independence, even though I know they're doing good work. Um our mission at Rebel News is to tell the other side of the story. So we don't even pretend to be balanced because we're not. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we all come, we come at it from a conservative viewpoint. And I tell my journalists, lead with your chin, right? If you, uh, if you are particularly interested in a story, if you're talking about Catholic education, I always lead with my chin and say, look, my kids go to Catholic school. So this is, this is my interest in the story. Um, which is something the mainstream media doesn't do. We know that largely a lot of them are cheering for Justin Trudeau or even Jagmeet Singh. Um, but they think the viewer is stupid, that, that you can't pick that up, um, either watching them or reading them. We just we just make it clear this is who we are. Um, so realize that this is the lens through which we're reporting, and I think people appreciate that honesty. Um, but also that, uh, and we don't hold it against him, but really the only trained journalist at the company is David Menzies. And the rest of us are just normal people who sort of came into the Rebel News galaxy the same way I did. Um, as sort of a citizen activist who saw that the mainstream media was failing or saw some sort of injustice or unfairness and tried to do the right thing. And I think that shows in the stories that we cover because we... I like to think that we fight for the normal people. Um, we cover the stories that the normal people actually care about. Like this idea that we're going to ban gas stoves, which is sort of floating around oh, on CBC God. today. You know, no normal person actually cares about their gas stove. Nobody, no normal person actually worries that their gas stove is killing them. But the mainstream media wants you to worry about those things. Um, and so I think the fact that we're all just a bunch of normal people with families and the same inflationary pressures that everybody else has. And I'm in particular, like I'm a farmer. My husband works in the oil patch. I've got kids in, in school. Um, so I look at things through a, in, through a different lens than journalists working in a cubicle in downtown Calgary, look at the world. Like I have a particular interest in agriculture. And so I know when, you know, the, the liberals are proposing nitrogen emissions, I understand what that's going to do to me, but also my neighbors. Um, whereas the people in working in a, you know, a cubicle in Calgary, they think, Oh, that's, that's great. We're going to save the planet. And they don't think about those other implications. I've put a lot of thought between, um, those that live in downtown cores and those that live rurally. Uh, I've yeah. been, I've done it all. I've lived in all the different uh, sectors. And it seems to me that the closer somebody lives to a downtown core, uh, the more they're part of the collective, part of the Borg, and they're dependent on the system. They're dependent on government. They're dependent on everything working. And when you're out on a farm, Everything, nothing's ever working. You're always out there uh, learning how to weld. It's why they call it farmer welding. You know, you just you just 
figure it out. You got nothing but problems and stuff busting. And you're like, well, how the hell do I fix this? And you just figure it out. And, uh, but the closer you get to the downtown core, the closer, uh, Nobody even has a wrench set at home. Like they, they don't know how to fix anything because that's just, they didn't have to. Uh, they, you take it to the mechanic and they do it. But on a farm, there is no mechanic. And then everything in between, like the closer you get to town, the less stuff people know how to do. So the less independent that they are. And it seems that at some point in their psyche, at s- somewhere in their psyche, those that can't do secretly despise those that can and that's that's been my observation anyway. What are your thoughts on on the difference between uh, different types of people? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think rural Albertans are independent by nature, mm-hmm. right? That's probably why we vote conservative by and large. And the people who live in the downtown core, they are reliant on the system or the government. Now, that's not to say that people in rural Alberta don't rely on other people. I think we do. We must because we are so far away from the system. But we rely on our neighbors and we help each other without the hand of the government in between us and our neighbors. So, you know, when, you know, when people say, well, you should help the poor, I think we all think that you should probably help the poor. The difference between me and maybe somebody on the left is that I'll just do it. (laughs) I'll I'll volunteer. I'll I'll give to the food bank. I will give to my church. Um, Whereas I think people in the downtown core see the necessity of a system to take from you and give to somebody else there that you've sort of traded that off to um, the state. Whereas I think in rural Alberta, because we are, you know, you have to sort of rely on your neighbors because you can't always run to town. uh, We still have that mentality that we just help each other. Um, and even though we live far apart, it feels like we maybe know each other and we're a little bit closer. And maybe we maybe we care about each other a little bit more um, than I think people who live surrounded by other people do in the city. The smaller the community, the tighter the tribe. Like it's really yeah. interesting. Uh, I've really noticed that since we picked up a property of, up at Buffalo Lake, all of a sudden the neighbors are like, hey, if you need any tools, just come on over. I got this and I got that. Or, hey, do you need yeah. help with this? Do you need help with that? The neighbor gives you a bottle of wine. Welcome to the neighborhood. Uh, that doesn't happen in town. doesn't happen in the burbs and it sure as hell doesn't happen in the downtown core. Uh, neighbors aren't neighbors. You know, they're, they're all strangers where uh, we, we only have had the place for uh, a few months in the summer so far and then it's, it's all uh, uh, nailed up, <laughs> boarded up until next summer. But um, we already know the majority of our neighbors and we like them. (laughs) It's a very, very different thing. Um, One of my friends here just put in a comment and uh, I might as well ask for for my buddy Aaron Butt. Why is there never a clarification to the tie of Marxist ideology and the left-wing political views? And uh, well, all right. So so I'll ask it. Uh, It seems like Anytime that is pointed out, people roll their eyes or um, it's like the Marxists don't know that they're Marxists or, or even what that means. Uh, do you have a thought on that? Yeah, you know, I joke all the time at work that I'm not sure that we actually won the Cold War. We just stopped <laughs> fighting. <laughs> we just stopped fighting while they just walked through our institutions. Right. So a lot of people don't even understand what Marxism is. They don't understand what cultural Marxism is. They don't understand what 
um, collective rights are versus individual rights. They don't even understand. So it's natural that they roll their eyes when somebody says, actually, that's, you know, pretty collectivist. And, um, you know, that that's, you know, an inherent tenant of Marxism. But you also have to look at who is educating these people. As I said, the Marxists walked right through our institutions. So um, you have people who are Marxists who might not even know that they're Marxist teaching in our public schools and teaching in our uh, universities and conflating communist and Marxist ideals with compassion. You know, this is kindness. Um, And so, you know, so when you get to that next generation of people and you point out to them, actually, you know, what you're saying is pretty communist. They just roll their eyes and say, no, 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 no. This is this is just kindness. This is just how you live in a civilized society. So I think a lot of it is the fact that um, while we were minding our own business, uh, the collectivists were marching their way through our institutions. I saw a comment on social media from somebody I know, uh, and I think it was something to the tune of anything left of Hitler you call communism. I'm like, oh boy, is, 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 is that really what you think? That's, there's no shades of gray there. Um, and that's you know also, also mean, historically incorrect. Hitler was a socialist, <laughs> but, yeah, but we've, also, re, we've, re, they, we've, re, we've rewritten history. They say that on the other side, though, like they will point to us and basically say that anybody to the right of Justin Trudeau is some sort of fascist, right? Um, Or neo-Nazi. They do it to us, too, um, because and again, this is media. This is our institutions um, improperly teaching people social studies, really, it just comes down to that. If you want to be scared for the future of your children, just go on to teacher Twitter, like, like find out what the teachers are saying on Twitter and you will want to interrogate your children every time they walk in the door because it's, it's so anti-conservative. It's collectivist. It's anti-individual rights. It's uh, constant fear mongering about the end of the world from either climate change or this strain of COVID or and it teaches kids to be uncomfortable in their own families. So, um, yeah, I mean, they're, getting back to my original point, there's a lot of it on both sides where, you know, they do the same thing to us. But I'm not so sure we are guilty of unfairly pointing out what is collectivism. Well, let's unpack a bit because people don't seem to understand the dangers. Like, what's wrong with Marxism? And what's the problem there? I mean, I've got my views, but I was wondering if you could unpack it a little bit. Like, what is it? Why should people be concerned from your point of view? From my point of view, I think collectivism and Marxism goes against the fundamental dignity of being a human being. Because it, it prevents people from... And I look through things through a Christian worldview, but I try not to evangelize to people, but just so people know where I'm coming from. Um, I think every human being has a potential given to them by virtue of being a human being created in the image of God. And so when you are reduced to, you know, a cog in the wheel of society uh, that denies people uh, their potential. It it squashes their potential. When you are not able to 
achieve and do and be an entrepreneur and create something and then appreciate and use the um, the the riches of what you've created for yourself and for your family and for your tribe, um, I think that stifles society. Every great collectivist society has failed. And there's a trade-off that shouldn't be there. You, they trade off human rights in pursuit of the greater good. But at the end, there is no greater good. You know, when you look at collectivist societies, let's look at the ones that are vaguely functioning in society right now, Cuba. They meter the internet there. Um, they monitor the internet there. It's so that even you cannot organize against the state there. Venezuela, they collectivize the oil patch and their oil patch is failing. Why? Because they took away the incentive of people to do and create and invest. And so when you do that, it, society stagnates. But and right now the, that's happening in the Ukraine as well, right? Uh, exactly. Uh, com- complete control over the internet, even uh, the type of uh, Christian organizations that can get together, like uh, the, the church is, is being regulated. Like it's, it's straight up uh, totalitarian and yet he's the, the poster boy. Oh, Zelensky, oh, we the love him. Boy of democracy, they tell us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, that's another thing. So it's interesting to watch Ukraine. And let me be clear. I'm anti-invasion. You're from here. So, you know, this is like the Ukrainian heartland of Canada. You look at the phone book. Everybody's last name is Ukrainian. It uh, all ends in you, ski. It all ends in ski. You can take or Chuck. the second the second language at school is Ukrainian. So uh, I say this with absolute uh, anti-invasion sentiment uh, because I believe in the sovereignty of the individual. And the sovereignty of the individual also means I believe in the sovereignty of uh, sovereign states. But this idea that Zelensky is the model of democracy is insane. Uh, His crackdown on uh, skeptic journalists, his crackdown on the Rus- Russian Orthodox Church, it directly mimics what the Soviets did to the Ukrainian Catholic Church. So he is guilty of that which he says he is fighting the Russians from recreating in the world. The people that I talk to that are the most compelling when it comes to the way politics is going in the world, and I think in the forefront in Canada is people from like Poland or the former Czech Republic, or uh, as you know, I was in the Croatian war. So I saw that uh, disintegrate and the Ukraine uh, situation is reminding me a lot of that. It's a little upsetting. Um, And these people uh, or in Bulgaria where I got some friends right now and they're all saying the same thing. Like what, what are you doing? Don't you see where this is going? This is what happened here. It went to socialism, and socialism turned into communism. Like uh, it's it's the stepping stone to to communism. So you got to be really careful, and um, and and all the same tactics like controlling facts and and gaslighting and telling what is and isn't right um, or is and isn't real uh, in the 
the Czech Republic, when, when that broke up, people were told that it is scientifically proven, it is a scientific consensus, that all the scientists agree that communism is the best form of government. And if you don't believe that, you're a conspiracy theorist. I mean, it's the same argument, and everybody bought it then, and everybody's buying it again now. All the, everybody agrees. Everybody agrees. If you don't, you're nuts. You're outside of the uh, the tribe if you don't agree. Um, I, I'm not sure how to break through that wall with people. That like this this is a lie. Everybody doesn't agree. Well, and social media is such a strong enforcer of this collectivist group think mm. because in the before times uh, the communists would just censor your newspaper. They would take your typewriter away. Um, I remember as you're telling me a story about East Germany where um, like you would have to give them a typing sample on your typewriter because uh, if you were organizing or writing pamphlets, which is the old fashioned way of sending a tweet, <laughs> yeah. they would, um, they would be able to come back and see if it came from your typewriter. Like fi- the, fingerprints. Yep, that you were guilty of wrong thing. But the state doesn't have to do that anymore. They've offloaded the censorship onto the social media platforms who are so often so willing to comply. And I think that's why they're so threatened by Elon Musk is because he serves to reset all of that. But, you know, when you look at Facebook and YouTube and Instagram, Part of my job at work, and it's my biggest stress in the day, that and making sure David Menzies isn't getting arrested again. Is, <laughs> <laughs> well, he, is, he does like to poke the bear. Yeah, constantly. Um, but it's making sure that we don't post something that will have us kicked off of YouTube and kicked off of Facebook and kicked off of Instagram. There's so many things that we can't talk about on those platforms until such time as they say you're allowed to talk about them again, which is constantly changing. But it, it, almost, it almost feels as though they are, and I, I work very hard not to sort of get into the self-censorship mindset, um, but, you know, you, we use it, those platforms to say, hey, for the uncensored version, Come over here. We don't kowtow to the censorship um, because we know there are a lot of conservatives who want to hang on to their uh, YouTube and their Twitter accounts, although Twitter's not so bad anymore, but their Instagram accounts and their Facebook. So they self-censor. They just don't talk about the stuff that we talk about. What part of my job is to say, we're going to talk about that. We're going to tell the viewer we're going to talk about that, but we're going to talk about that in a place where we're allowed to talk about that. But that's big tech acting as a government of its own. Well, um, and and just as bad, Silicon Valley, just as bad as the big tech. Big tech is the idea of all this um, state-sponsored uh, journalism, right? Like, uh, it's funny how RT gets um, debunked or whatever. Like, people just go, "Oh, it's RT. It's it's Russian-backed uh, propaganda." Hang on. Hold on, CBC, CTV, they, they're all Canadian-backed. So how is that any different than RT? 
they they, yeah. they don't exist without the government backing. Without the government backing, the carpet uh, comes out from under them and they collapse. There is no more CBC without the government backing. So there, there is no difference. And there's something inherent in, in most people. Unfortunately, I'm missing this gene where uh, where I protect myself from losing my job. I just say <laughs> I, I don't have that. Uh, I wasn't born with that. But, um, but most people are smarter than me and they know to keep their mouth shut and they don't bite the hand that feeds them that's most people they have this inherent things like oh can't can't ruffle the feathers i can't rock the boat i can't upset the boss well when the government's your boss nobody has to tell you not to give um, not to treat trudeau with kid gloves nobody has to tell you that it's just like you know <laughs> where that box of cookies is coming from and uh you don't want to upset that apple cart you want to keep your job well, and that's why Trudeau's media bailout was so important to him. It's because it turned all the other unsubsidized media outlets into the CBC, just little versions of the CBC, because they rely on that, you know, $600 million media bailout and the preferential tax treatment and the ability to uh, allow their subscribers or paid subscribers to write off um, their subscriptions which is sort of how it's structured right now. If you get the QCJO, the Qualified Canadian Journalist Organization, which is like the government stamp of approval on your work, <laughs> which is so crazy. It's, you want to talk Marxism, that's crazy. But if you get that, you're able to provide um, a tax receipt to your subscribers and then they can write off, write that off in your taxes or in their taxes. But that's why that media bailout was so important to Justin Trudeau because now it made him the boss man of everybody else, CTV, Global New Chorus, Post Media, which is the single largest recipient of Trudeau's bailout. Um, although they closed up shop on 12 Alberta local newspapers yesterday, I guess uh, even the bailouts aren't helping them there. But that's why the ba- that's why that bailout is so important is because you know who butters your bread and it's Justin Trudeau and you behave accordingly. Um, but Again, I think in a way that we always lead with our chin at Rebel News and tell everybody where we're coming from, the consumer isn't stupid. And that's why post-media, despite all the bailouts, they continue to lose money. And it's because the public doesn't trust them. And those bailouts are preventing that company from having the market correction it so rightly deserves. It's never going to right the ship and return to regular old journalism. They used to be conservative. I think there are a lot of people there that are still conservative, but um, people don't trust them because of Justin Trudeau's money. I've had the good fortune of having some trolls on my account that I've actually (laughs) turned into advocates. And Mm -hmm. I think it's so important. And this is... um, When I hear the name calling, I don't care who's doing it. It uh, it bothers me because... you. When you're, when you're name-calling, you're only preaching to the choir and you're not reaching across the aisle. And mm-hmm. I, I think that this giant divide between liberals and conservatives isn't actually as big as we think it is. I think no. if, if we boil it down and we really look at what do you want, what do you think is right, and what do you think is wrong? And if you really boil it down to that in an honest adult way, we're not as far as par- apart as, as what it may appear. The, the difference is a couple of things. How do we get there? 
how do we solve this problem? And also, what are the actual problems? But how do we solve the problem? And and having an adult conversation. And my my soapbox that I repeat on the show a fair bit is if we could stick with Graham's hierarchy of arguments, stick with the central point, stay away from the bottom of that uh, pyramid of the, the name-calling and the ad hominem attacks, and stay in our adult ego state where we don't need to fight back like uh, Trump does with his, he calls himself a counterpuncher. Eh, you're kind of a big baby. But um, uh, we, we've been conditioned to think that this is how it's done. You have to fight back with the name calling. You have to fight back with uh, the character assassination. And I don't think you do. I think we can do it with, um, with compassion and, and understanding and trying to understand where somebody's coming from and sticking to the central point of, I, I get where you're coming from, but you're just wrong. That's just yeah. wrong. And this is why it's wrong. And I think I would just, I hope that we start drifting in, in, in that direction. That's my little soapbox moment there. Yeah. You know, I think I agree with you. And then I think I will push back on that a little bit. Sure. Um, but I think we used to be at a point where we didn't think that we were evil. We just thought that we were different and uh, mm. and wrong. But I think we've moved past that to a place where, and I would argue that some of the things that I am seeing from the institutional left, I would suggest it is probably evil. When I look at, you know, the medical transition of children and, and the scapegoating of law-abiding gun owners for crimes committed by other people, um, where now we view uh, people who are dying or suffering as spare parts, as we've seen with uh, medical assistance in dying. I think we have moved into where I think we can reasonably call some of the arguments coming from the other side as evil. The problem is they've been taught. And I, I think there's some people in that movement who are not evil, but they've been taught that how they think and how they feel is compassion. They've cloaked um, evil, as evil always tends to do. Uh, they've cloaked it in kindness, and it is anything but kindness. And so I think it is incumbent on us to call those things out when we see them. Otherwise, we are just complacent in normalizing it. But there are also other people on the other side who they've just, as I say, they've just been taught that this is this is me being nice. I must be permissive of everything that you do. And that's nice. And that's me caring. Whereas I think you, uh, maybe I do, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I see as letting somebody languish in a sweet, sweet lie. I think that's unkind in and of itself. So I think our worldviews are different in what we think is um, the nice way to treat other people. And I will agree with everything that you just said. Um, I, I suppose it's a matter of of how it's expressed when we're when we're talking about or to people. So if somebody holds a view that I believe is straight up evil, and and you're right, that is on the rise. Um, the argument about made that uh, you and I have spoken about several times now, um, it's just wrong. It's straight up. It's wrong and it's evil, but that makes it even more important to have the people that are wrong to see that they're wrong. And calling them an a-hole is is not going to help them see that it's wrong. It it, it isn't. 
right? And we need them to reconsider their views and at least consider why some people think that that's wrong and, and to try to put themselves in, in the boots of others. If we, if we don't do that, it's just a fight and it's the escalation that I see happening right now in Canada where the divide is, is getting more and more vicious. Um, when the truckers rolled into Ottawa, I thought it was the most beautiful thing. I was so proud, so proud yeah. of all those people that, I mean, the, the, the personal risk that they were taking, the, the financial burden, all of it. It, it was just beautiful. And it took on a, a life of its own. It went international. There were people yeah. uh, in South America and, and around the world flying Canadian flags doing similar protests. It was beautiful. And I, I thought it was the most amazing thing. And yet those that didn't like it, that had a very ob- opposite view, um, were just so nasty and heartless and unkind. And uh, when somebody's being like that and they're being nasty and they're being unkind and they're being heartless, the only way to, and I have turned people around like that, I've turned yeah. them into advocates. Is 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 to sh- point out the unkindness, and 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 to point out how they are being the thing that they say that they hate. Yep. You know they are being the thing that they say they hate. Uh, in the comments here, somebody called me out, and rightfully so. I'm just going to r- scroll up. Enoch four six two. Whoever you are, you was exactly right. I was uh, talking about name calling, and then I called Trump a big baby. Like, oh yeah, good catch. <laughs> yeah. So you got me. You know. So w- we can all be gu- guilty of it, but uh, it's. Um, I, I just think it's so important to to cool the temperatures down because you can you can say your piece, you can say it strongly, and I think you can say it more strongly um, if you do it in a way that's respectful to the others. And I will draw a distinction between um, somebody like Marco Mendicino, who mm. knows he's who knows he's lying. <laughs> yeah, he does. Or Bill Bill Blair, who absolutely knows who where the illegal guns are coming from and who's committing the crimes because he used to be the police chief of Toronto. So yeah, I will draw distinction. Yeah, I will draw a distinction between lying liars who lie and know they're lying, and that because their only ideology is the pursuit and maintenance of their own power. I draw a distinction between those people and the people who unwisely believed the lying liars who lied. Yes. Those I think pe- those other people I think are still reachable, but there are people who know they know objective reality. They just don't care because it doesn't benefit them to lean right into objective reality when they're calling the truckers terrorists and seditionists and fringe radicals and white supremacists. They know that's not true. But they need other people to believe that so that they can hang on to power. I'm I'm having a tough time digging up the kindness for people like them. That is a really good and wise uh, delinea- delineation point, you know. I, and I agree with that. Um, when I saw that police chief, the same guy that you're talking about during the um, uh, the hearings, talking about Diagalon as if it was a terrorist organization, I I was aghast, uh, like. 
you you freaking liar that, that is yeah, it's that, a flag it, company <laughs> well it's not even that it was a joke know. like it, know, but it, it's turned into a flag company a joke with a flag company yeah and that's the threat to canada now yeah it it, it, it I, I listened to the whole thing that uh the guy that came up with that did and it, it it's just a lie. There is no organization. Di- Diagon was a meme. It was a joke. It was a parody. Um, it was satire, and and obviously so. And they knew that. So as you said, liars knowing that they're lying, lying their pants off. Another example that uh, uh, that we both know about is the one I've been working on, and I'll talk to you off air about what's cooking with that because I got some stuff Perfect. cooking, some good stuff. Uh, it's all about. <laughs> Mr. McCauley, I gave you an email, man, and I warned you that I wouldn't quit. I told you I wouldn't quit. And he sent me a letter back going, (laughs) oh, no, it's all a conspiracy theory. Okay, man, I I gave you a fair warning. I was going to expose this, and it's coming. Let me tell you, it's coming. But uh, Minister McCauley, knowing that he's lying, he knew he was lying. Either that or he's got the worst advisors ever that need to be fired and they need to be fired now because uh, that's possible. It is possible that he's so disengaged with how Veterans Affairs Canada works that he actually didn't know. He just believed his advisors that were covering their own butts. That is actually possible. But um, then his advisors are, are lying. But uh, we, we watch people who know better publicly say the opposite of the truth uh as jordan peterson says an anti-truth and uh that is something else but i i really feel deeply that this year people are waking up yeah there i i really feel that this is the year that 23 is the year of people going wait a second that ain't right you son of a gun you lied to me and i know you lied to me i wonder who else is lying to me and I think it's all coming unraveled this year. I really do. I feel it in my bones. Do, do you have that same sense? Uh, I, I can tell you that I do, and I can tell you why. Mm. So during the truck convoy, that was our biggest month ever in the existence of Rebel News, February of 2022. And the reason it was is because people were just, we did very little commentary journalism there. We just told our journalists who were on the ground for the duration of a convoy, turn on your cameras, turn on your cell phones, live stream everything. Because people need to see reality and not what the CBC, who refused to leave their offices to go to the convoy, which is literally right underneath their offices, to go talk to these people. Go out, talk to the truckers, show everybody what's happening, show everybody the police actions, show everybody how the convoy is responding. Keep your opinions to yourself, really. And people looked to us to provide that because they knew that they couldn't trust the mainstream media to do it. And I think the convoy was really the turning point for a lot of people because they were able to fact check, not just the politicians, but the mainstream media in real time. I was going to say the liberals in the mainstream media, but I would be repeating myself there. But they were able to repeat (laughs) or they were able to fact check it in real time um, and see that they were being lied to. And I think a lot of the scales fell off people's eyes during that. Um, And you're seeing it in strange places, places where I'm like, I'm just going to stand back and let my enemies fight this out and hope nobody survives. Um, Where where I see uh, Greenpeace 
highly critical of the World Economic Forum this week because everybody flew in on private jets. They said 1,300 private jets flew into the airport adjacent to Davos. Well, there's the little bit of extra that happens. They fly into the airport at Davos, but we know then they get on private helicopters and then they fly to a helipad that's closer to Davos because cars are for little people. That's gross. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you've got Greenpeace turning on the World Economic Forum. And so, uh, you know, they're... The awakening, it's coming from strange places, but it's happening all over the place if you pay attention. There, I'm sure you have people on your Facebook feed who went from pro-lockdown and then along came vaccines. Pro-vaccines, pro-vaccine mandates to the lockdowns didn't work. It destroyed a lot of people's lives, and I'm not sure these vaccines work either. So uh, there are a lot of people, it's taking them longer you know, like they're taking the long way around. There are a lot of people who they're being mugged by reality the further things go on. I've seen a few people turn around and, and people that were diehard. I mean, diehard. Oh, I, me I, went, I went for lunch with uh, a lawyer buddy of mine that we served about the same time. He actually took over uh, from my tour. He was an officer back then. And um, as I go into the restaurant... <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, I, I commented how stupid it was that I, I'm not wearing a mask up to the door, then I wear one to, to walk through to the outside restaurant, and then I could take it off again, and how ridiculous that was. So I don't even know why they, how this is still happening. I mean, this, this doesn't work. And he goes, it does work. I'm like, uh-oh. This is our first, first meeting. And it went downhill from there. We reconciled after, but um, absolutely adamant that this um, uh, spit mask We'll stop. We'll, we'll stop a, a virus. Absolutely adamant, and um, he's gone completely the other direction now. Um, well, seventy percent the other direction. Uh, he's representing James Top. Uh, like yeah. he really went the other way after. And um, but the fact, but people like facts just don't matter, and that is so interesting to me. The facts don't matter. The Great Barrington Declaration. People. Don't read it. They don't know what it is. Uh, uh, I've read it. I have I've looked at who the signatories were, you know. But if, if people say, well, then who do you trust? How about nobody? Don't trust Rebel. Don't trust CBC. Don't trust freaking anybody. Be curious and just look for yourself. Look yeah. behind the curtain yourself. Look up the Great Barrington Declaration and read it, you know, Uh and then tell me how you're going to argue with 40,000 plus experts. Well, you know, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I always say that uh, when I'm reporting on access to information documents, I'll read the documents, but I also say, look, don't trust me. I've attached the documents here for you. You can read through them for yourself. You can see the context in which all these statements are made. Um, because I think it's important for people to be able to fact check me, get their information from other sources interpret the facts how they see fit and not just the way that I'm interpreting them. Um, and getting back to your point about showing people kindness, I think this is where I'm doing my best to stick my I told you so's in a sack and I love good I told you so. So this is very difficult for me. But when there are people <laughs> who come around to our way of thinking after I've spent uh, three years evangelizing it, I have to show them some grace. Otherwise, we'll just send them fleeing back to the other side because they're, they come around to your way of thinking and then we're mean to them. Um, we need to be able to welcome these people into the fold and say, welcome, you're a free thinker. We're not going to agree on everything, but get over here, you big lug. Um, 
because otherwise, what's the point? Like, if you're just if you're just saying these things to be right, what's the point? Don't you want other people to rethink their worldview using arguments that you've made? And if they change their mind, you can't really hold that against them. That's the point of making these arguments is to convince other people on the other side. So be kind to them when they finally get mugged by reality. They're like little babies <laughs> being born. You have to be nice to them. Um, but it's funny. I, and again, I don't even, you know, it's shocking, right? Because you have, you just described a very smart man, right? He's a lawyer who believed all this nonsense, who couldn't see the the strangeness of mask here, good, mask no mask there, also good. Uh, stops the spread, but everybody's getting sick. Justin Trudeau has had COVID like 11 times and he's like on his 90th booster or whatever. So it, it takes a while for people to figure it out. But very smart people are susceptible to something called the Milgram experiment. Do you know about this? Oh, I've heard it, but uh, please refresh me. Okay, so the Milgram experiment is basically what would you do if a guy in a lab coat told you to do it? And... It gives a perception of authority, the perception of science, sciencing. And basically, we watched society go through this every day with Dina Hinshaw and Teresa Tam. But uh, I just brought it up. So the Milgram experiment, they would bring in people who were part of the experiment, and they would be sitting across from somebody uh, like behind a glass wall or whatever. And that person's sitting in an electric, what they think is an electric chair. Now keep in mind, this person is an actor, but the person in the experiment doesn't know that he's an actor and the experimenter dressed in a lab coat. And this is the important part. Uh, it's to appear to have more authority told the participants, this was to ensure that the learner would not escape. So they're in an electric chair and they're, like fixed to the electric chair. And basically the guy in the lab coat tells the guy who's in the experiment, hit the button and electrocute that person. And so they do it and they continue to do it. And the, the electrocution, which is fake, but they don't know it continues to get worse and worse until the person appears to die. And the overwhelming majority of people Never say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to electrocute this guy. Or this guy's obviously going to die if I hit this button one more time. The majority of people never stop. They will do whatever that person in the lab coat tells them to do because of the perception of authority. And we just lived through that over the past three years. Our, our guy in a lab coat was Fauci. It was Teresa Tam. It was Dina Hinshaw here in Alberta, Bonnie Henry in B.C., then all the other people, people in lab coats that were contradicting yeah. him were saying, this is crazy. What are you talking about? Everybody else in lab coats were, were called wing nuts and conspiracy theorists. The, pe the people with the best resumes in the world and they were discounted. Exactly. Because the other people had that extra layer of authority in that they were employed by the government. So not only do you have a doctor lab coat type, but they are also got that extra layer of authenticity and authority because they're employed by the government, people just listened. And this is an experiment that plays out time and time again, and we just live through a society-wide one. Well, interesting point. Um, Dr. Dennis Modry was, uh, I had heart surgery in 1999. I was 29 years old. I was all buggered up. Um, and apparently, I was about to die. And, and it was like, oh, good catch. 
so the top guy in the province at the time was Dr. Dennis Modry. He was uh, lauded as this genius, the only guy, uh, the first guy in Alberta to do a heart transplant. And everybody was yeah. like worshipped at his feet. Yeah. And then he retired all these years later. And he started saying, hey, uh, you know, the Great Barrington Declaration is like, it's, it's valid. It's, these are actual experts, that, and I agree with it. Oh, he's a wingnut. He's a conspiracy theorist. So, like, the guy that was lauded, where they were bowing to this guy, um, like, oh, this genius, you know. And he was a hero one day and a villain the next. Uh, and the only reason he was able to say his, his piece is because he's retired. So he can't take yeah. his medical license. It's he's he's hung it up. So now he's gone in in, uh, in a different. But isn't it funny how uh, the the person that we were cheering for as this is this is the science. This is this is the guy. And also, no, he's a wingnut. He's a dum dum. He he doesn't know anything. Well, hey, it's the same guy. What are you talking about? It's uh, yeah, and- the psychology of it is incredible. And. It's there's an extra layer because I don't think I'm talking out of turn. I know Dr. Dennis. Um, But if you've paid attention to politics in Alberta, or if you've been to a fundraiser, um, Dr. Dennis was beloved by the people bashing him when he was saying all the right things, Mm, when he would buy a table at their fundraiser. Um, I I mean, he's been politically connected since before the Ralph Klein days. Um, He, uh, a staple in conservative circles until he disagreed with them based on his own medical and scientific experience. He disagreed with their political moves. Um, Then all of a sudden he is persona non grata for these people, everything they, and that's the worst part in all of this is that everything they knew about him, they knew that he was a good guy, a reliable conservative believed in personal Liberty, believed in helping people and saving people's lives. They knew all those things about him, but immediately none of those things mattered once he disagreed with them on this one issue. Um, Then they just threw him out the baby out with the bathwater. That's one of the things that really bothers me about these coronavirus disagreements is that, it became an issue of morality. And I think that has a lot to do with the TV telling you, look, if you don't wear a mask, you're grandma killer. Um, And if you do wear a mask, you're just like a firefighter rushing into a burning building. So it gave a lot of people who don't do a lot of nice things for other people, this unearned sense of importance and heroism. But it, it became a matter of, are you a good person if you get this vaccine or wear a mask instead of just, are you just somebody who has a different outlook on the world on this one issue? And a lot of family relationships and friendships broke down. And that was the part that really bothered me in all of this. There are a lot of people that I knew who were like, who decided that I wasn't the person they always knew because I had a different outlook on this one little thing. Yeah. The lack of loyalty and friendships, the, the lack of ability to, Accept that somebody else has a different point of view. It, it hurt. Um, what it did to my children, yeah, is unbelievable. Uh, a guy I served with uh, made us. Uh, oh, it's just a minor inconvenience. Minor inconvenience. <laughs> People lost their businesses, like yeah. their lifetime investment, their legacy, what they were going to give their children. It's it's gone. Their entire life wiped 
out. And uh, the, the last couple of years of my kid's life, you know, um, my, my kid joined uh, Army Cadets, uh, following in Dad's footsteps, PPCLI yeah. Cadets. Um, and the whole reason was, I can't wait to the Vernon camp. I want to go to the camp in Vernon. And um, uh, then the pandemic hit, nobody went. Okay, fair enough. And then when it started to uh, uh, dissipate, okay, here's your chance to go to the camp. Oh, I'm sorry. You're, in the, you're the wrong class of person. These other kids can go. But yeah. you can't go, even though you just won the award for seen, the best senior NCO in, in the whole place. Like you're, you're not just a cadet; you're a senior yeah. g- guy, and you're a rock star. Oh no, you're a second class citizen. You're not allowed to go. That hurt yeah. him so much, and it's it is such a um, gross feeling that one class of person would be treated like that and the people that 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 are cruel they justify it and they say it's because you're a piece of crap if you weren't yeah. such a piece of crap I, I wouldn't treat you like a piece of crap but you're a piece of crap so i i get to treat you like a piece of crap and and that is more or less the the boiled down argument that people make to justify uh treating people just horribly yeah there's the biomedical elite or and, and people who like i said uh, uh I'll psychologically examine a lot of these people, even though I have no expertise in any of that. But <laughs> but there are a lot of people out there who, they're not the kind of people who would help an old lady across the street or shovel somebody's driveway yeah. or do things out of the goodness of their heart. But because that requires work and compassion and empathy for your fellow human being, but they don't really have a lot of that. But they can take a shortcut by wearing a mask and getting a vaccine and getting a booster, getting your third booster, your fourth booster for them. Now this feels like they're doing something for society. This is their unearned sense of virtue. Like I said, they're just like a firefighter rushing into a burning building. They are saving lives by wearing a mask. And I think for a lot of people, they don't want to give that up. Right. So a lot of people are still like on the, let's wear masks, let's get a gazillionth booster, let's still have this segregation and separation of society wherein we are in the biomedical elite um, because they're just generally not good people. And so this gives them that sense of morality that they don't have from doing other actual good things. And so they're clutching to it. Unearned heroes. Yeah. Unearned heroes, I, sort of a parallel that I see is in Stolen Valor. So I run Yo, into this, 100%. oh my God, I run into it all the time. Uh, people saying that they served, they did, that, but, but they didn't, or grossly exaggerating their service or, um, or exploits or making up tours that I know they didn't do. Um, it, it's gross, but it's because I, I want the recognition of doing something big, but I don't want the work. I don't want the exactly. responsibility. And it's it's the same kind of uh, mentality that unearned honor, and yeah. it's um it's it's an ego problem, you know, and yeah. that's really everything. I, it's one of the books I want to write. I've published a couple of books already. I got a few more in the works, but one of them is uh, the the ego problem or ego the devil you know is one of the working titles because um, it screws everything up, and it really is the 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 core of everything that's wrong. It boils down to toxic ego. Yeah, I I agree with you. And and again, this is why these people don't want to give it up. 
um, is because then they have to acknowledge that maybe you actually have to put some work in to be a a decent human being. You see the same thing with, you know, green cars. Like I bought a green car. So I care about the earth more than you do. And I'm like, well, I'm a farmer and a hunter. I kind of care about nature too, because I starve. (laughs) If, If things go bad in nature, you just, are you just offloaded caring onto a, a monthly payment to Nissan for your leaf? Um, it's <laughs> that doesn't mean that you actually care. It doesn't mean that you pick up garbage. I, you know, we saw this at the World Economic Forum this week. There's a guy from CNBC. Um, they're very uh, they're a very green company. CNBC. He's a executive there, and he uh, one of our journalists, Avi Yamini, confronts him outside. And it's something that you don't notice in the video, but if you go back and watch it. Uh, throws his cigarette throws his cigarette and I was like (laughs) you know it's the small stuff that matters that's so good small stuff when they're oh at the world economic forum lecturing people about their carbon footprint yes don't fly there on a private jet that's the big thing but you're also a litter bug and I feel like that's pretty important too (laughs) Sheila we're over an hour uh do you have any time left uh yeah I got about another 10 minutes I could spare Sweet. Yeah. Um, geez, I don't know where. I, you know what? I, I was, I was going to ask you something off air, but I'll, I'll ask you on air. Um, sure. A friend of mine is the, the producer of the Veteran Hunters. So Veteran Hunters started as a uh, charity for, for veterans where he would find and fund hunts and then veterans would go on the hunts. And it's awesome. And I've been on a couple of them. It's been great. Um, so I'm friends with Man Tracker, uh, with, with Terry. And I said, hey, uh, what do you think about having Terry on the show? And then the two of us can go on a hunt together. And uh, he's like, oh, my God, yeah. I called Terry. He's in. How would you like to join us, Sheila? 100%. Uh, you want to join us for a hunting TV <laughs> oh, show? Yeah. Me, you, and Man yeah. Tracker? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to ask me twice. <laughs> All right. Todd Heisey, if you're listening, uh, you heard it. I'll give Todd a call. I am I can almost guarantee he'll be in. Me, you, and Man Tracker on TV hunting for something. Do you uh, uh, hunt rifle as well as bow? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's a no-brainer well, then. Well, slug gun. Slug gun. It's Strathcona oh, County, got- so they're very uptight <clears throat> about long oh, guns here. That's why I have one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you go 12 or 20 gauge? 12. Yeah, yeah, you're you're the big shooter. I call I call mine uh, gave mine a name. I call it Molly, Molly the Mule, because it kicks like a mule. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, it's all slug gun here. I, I guess it's because there's so many acreages around, so I understand why they do it, but um, sure makes it tougher. Yeah, it does. But I got a slug gun for the exact same uh, for the exact same reason. I just got a. And use it. I got um, uh, cousins with lots of farmland in, in and around uh, by Elk Island Park. So, yeah, that's where. That, you know what? We're probably neighbors. Probably neighbors. <laughs> well, uh, my cousins are on uh, Range Road two twelve, north of uh, sixteen. I don't want to give up my exact location. Oh, no, but we're close very enough. Close. Very, very <laughs> yes. close. Well, I know that area like the back of my hand. I'll have to come up for no. a visit. But I no, think we're about there. You probably know the subdivision named after my family. That's right in between me and your family. Anyways, I'm also giving up my exact location. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) You'll get PETA showing up, uh, throwing throwing paint on you. Uh, Yeah, that that, that won't be good. 
But uh, <laughs> Sheila, I so, so appreciate you, you coming on. Really good to uh, shoot the breeze with you a little bit. And thank you for the work that you do, because it's not easy. Uh, didn't you even get punched in the melon uh, once uh, w- with one of your reports? You got hit? Yeah. Uh, yeah, was was that, that, it was the, that person in uh, BC, right? No. Uh, although Jonathan Yaniv's mother tried to strangle me at, at a courthouse one time. <laughs> That's Lord, jumping. Story. <laughs> um, I had security, so it was okay. Um, but yeah, it was at the Women's March in Edmonton right after Donald Trump got elected and a bunch of uh, feminists were overreacting for some reason about what was happening in the United States, which... I, I'm not sure because nothing actually did happen in the United States to them. But anyways, they were they were at the Women's March and they were protesting and a male feminist ally uh, came up and punched my camera into the side of my face. Oh, my God. And um, then the 800 or so uh, cat ladies helped him get away and they basically... Uh, victim blamed me. They My politics were my skirt was too short, right? I was asking for it. Um and uh, they helped him get away, although um, then we, Ezra, ran a bounty on him. We said we would give, I think it was $1,000 to uh, someone who would identify him. And uh, quickly, within like 45 minutes, <laughs> one of his compatriots quickly turned him in. And yeah. um, that video will live forever at DionBuse.com. We bought his URL so that um, he can never rewrite his history. In case anybody ever Googles his name, that's oh, the first man. thing they're going to find out about him. Well, some of the work that uh, Rebel has done, not just the news reporting, but the advocacy, uh, covering legal fees for for people, uh, and to no small amount either, like significant legal fees around the world, uh, Australia, Canada, uh, the work you do, I mean, I don't always agree with some of the stuff I hear and see, but that's how it's supposed to be, you're not supposed to. You know, uh, I may not always agree, but I will defend to the death your right to do it. And when I say that, you know, I mean it because I've actually yeah. put my life on the line for the rights of others. And and, and that's the dividing line um, on our side of the aisle. I actually will gladly put my life on the line for, for somebody else and for their rights. I will. And I have put my life on the line more than once. Um, and I would do it again in a heartbeat because it's the right thing to do. And yet the people on the other side wouldn't do it for me. Yeah. Wouldn't do it for me at all. No. Uh, you know, that's one of the things I'm really proud of that we do at rebel news is that not only do we show up and tell the story of what has happened to someone on oftentimes their very worst day. Um, but you know, we were meeting a lot of people during the height of the lockdowns who they had lost their jobs. Um, you know, their family's really on the cusp of unraveling and somebody gets a lockdown ticket for $1,200 and a family that's just on the edge, that's enough to pull them apart. That's enough oh, yeah. to cause a divorce. It's, it's terrible. And so you realize the responsibility of meeting somebody on their worst day where the things are going to go real bad for them real fast and saying, not only will I tell your story, and people are going to care about you, even though you're just a little guy and you think nobody actually, why would anybody care about me? People are going to be outraged at your treatment. So you're going to have moral support. But let me also offer you this solution. And I don't want anything from you. I just want to help because this is the right thing to do. And a lot of people are going to feel the same way as me. And so to be able to offer those people free legal help and not crappy lawyers, but we didn't take any lawyers who volunteered to work for free. 
we, we wanted lawyers who thought their time was worth money uh, because we felt that everybody deserved strong legal representation to fight their tickets in court. Um, and so that was one of the things that I was really proud that we were able to do because I think to do anything else for me would have felt like exploitation yeah. uh, of, of their story, of their misery. I wanted to be able to offer a solution. But a lot of those people that I met, they said, I reached out to Rebel News because I didn't know what to do, but I'm on the left. And I'm like, I don't care. Like, I don't care where you come from. Your civil liberties uh, are not determined, at least according to me, by your politics. You're a Canadian. You are allowed to associate with whomever you want. You're allowed to have whomever you want in your house. You're allowed to protest. And I'm going to defend your right to do it. Um, And so I've met a lot of people who are like, Sheila, I hated your guts. Because (laughs) you were so mean to Rachel Notley. (laughs) And, and, but like and particularly Calgary protesters, they're like, you were so mean to Rachel Notley. Um, and I really hated you. I'm like, I, I don't, I don't care. Like, I don't take any of this personally. I yeah. want to help you. If the government's stomping all over your rights, I care and I'm going to help you fight. So um, uh, that's, I think, probably the reason that in spite of getting punched in the face and, and a lot of people saying a lot of untrue things about us here at Rebel News, I don't really care because uh, I feel like, and maybe it's not a lot every single day, but I feel like maybe I'm, I'm changing the world a little bit every day and in maybe in ways I don't even know for people I've never even met. And I agree with you, Sheila. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks Mark. Anytime. All right. Please stay on the line. You're listening to operation Tango Romeo, the podcast. Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels. Because sharing is caring.